this morning. If you take your Bibles and turn to the first gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, and chapter number 9. Matthew 9. Last year in September, there was a new word, it's actually more like a combination of words, but a new word that was added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. That word was the phrase, mic drop. You know what that means? Now there's an official definition. So I'm going to read to you the official definition from Merriam-Webster Dictionary of the phrase mic drop. It is the figurative act of dramatically dropping a microphone after a performance, speech, etc. as to indicate that what one has said or done cannot be disputed or surpassed. It's a definitive statement, so powerful so articulate that it rules out any further discussion. Conversation over. All the truth that is needed to be added is there. It's done. Drop the mic. Walk out. Mic drop. I think we could say in the Gospels that Jesus had many such moments especially with the Pharisees. One of those moments, I think, is found right here at the end of our text in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus offers a definitive statement that is so powerful, so articulate, that the conversation is over. All the truth that that needed to be heard was heard. It was all there, and it was done. Look there, Matthew chapter 9, we'll pick up reading in verse number 10, get a little bit of the context. It says, it came to pass, Matthew 9 and verse 10, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Heavenly Father, would you be pleased and honored and glorified with all that is said from this pulpit over these next few moments. God, I need your help. I pray that you would guide and direct my thoughts and my words, that I would not in any way stand in the way of the incredible truth that you have placed here, that you spoke from your mouth I pray that what is said would only enhance and explain the truth that you've put here for us. And I pray, I know there are some who sit here in this auditorium this morning who do not understand this truth. They've never come to terms 
with the meaning of this truth. And I pray that you would help them to see it in a new and a fresh way. And not only see it, but respond to it. Would you be pleased and glorified over these next few moments? And it's in your precious son's name I ask. Amen. So as I was reading this passage in in my devotions a few weeks ago, there was a particular phrase, and you know, when you're reading God's Word and maybe you're reading passages that, that are familiar, this is a fairly familiar passage, but there are phrases that just kind of jump out and grab your attention. And there was a particular phrase in verse number 13 as Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he answered their objection Uh, really, their rebuke that they were offering. And it's a phrase that's unique to Matthew's account of what took place. And it's at the beginning of verse 13. The phrase is simply, Go ye and learn. Go and learn. This is a rather cutting statement to the Pharisees. It's, It's a rather offensive statement. If we could summarize what Jesus is saying in our, own, in our own words, what he's trying to get across is that you Pharisees, you, you guys think you know what you're talking about. But the reality is you don't have a clue. You think that you're experts in what you're trying to say. The reality is you kind of need to go back to kindergarten and start over. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. Go and learn. Now, we can be critical of the Pharisees, and we're going to be today, all right? Because they deserve it, all right? We can be critical of them, but the sad fact of the matter is that the same thing that they needed to learn and had not learned, the same thing that they struggled to come to terms with, The same thing that they misunderstood is the same exact thing that many people, and really we could say most people, do not understand today. The same exact truth. And if that were just simply a misunderstanding, like, oh, you know, you didn't quite get it and you just just need a little bit of tweak to your understanding. If it was just, you know, something simple like that it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. But this misunderstanding is the very difference between eternal life in heaven and eternal damnation in hell. It's that significant and it's that serious. And so today, let's go and learn. Let's go and learn. Let's let's figure out what Jesus was saying. Let's dig into the lesson that he was trying to teach and make sure that we understand what Jesus wants us to understand, the lesson that we need to learn. But before we do that, let's look first of all at the context of this lesson. We, We looked at a few verses. Really, it starts a verse prior than where we started reading in verse number nine, where we see that Jesus passed from thence and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. This was the call of Jesus on a man named Matthew. And we're introduced to him for the first time right here in this text. And he's 
sitting at the receipt of custom. Custom is like tribute. It is what we know today as a tax. Because Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. Um, This was a lucrative job in Bible days, but as a Jew, it was not exactly an honorable job. He was seen as a, a greedy trader. You'll notice the equation there in verse number 11 by the Pharisees. Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? In other words, they're one and the same. They're, they're equal. They're grouped together. They saw them as the same. They saw them as greedy, unrighteous traitors. They saw them as the sinners that were the worst of the worst. And the fact that Jesus would even call such a person is kind of noteworthy in and of itself, that, that he would do such a thing. Now, we understand when we come to specifically this text that this was not the point at which Matthew was saved. This was not his salvation, but rather it was his call to full-time service. In fact, if we go to the book of Luke, and won't do so for sake of time, but chapter 3 and verse number 12 tells us about the entire uh, a group, um, a large group of publicans who specifically came to John the Baptist to hear him preach and specifically to be baptized. And I don't know if Matthew was one of those specifically spoken of in Luke chapter 3, but I do know as an apostle that he was saved under the preaching of John the Baptist and then baptized uh, with that baptism. And so obviously God had already begun to do a work in Matthew's life. And and I kind of wonder if he was sitting there doing what he always had done and just fulfilling the obligation of his job and not necessarily feeling all that fulfilled and uh, probably the, 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 the extra money, which is why he, most likely he chose such a profession, didn't have the attraction that it once had and, and uh, the pursuit after uh, things and wealth, it, it just didn't satisfy much anymore. And when Jesus walked by and he said, Matthew, it's time, follow me. Well, there wasn't much hesitation. Close up shop, lock the doors. You know, I'm out of here. I'm with Jesus. And of course, this was Matthew's call to what we might term. It's not a biblical term, but we might use the term full-time ministry. And from this point on, Matthew would be with Jesus. And he would be with Jesus in order to be sent out by Jesus. He would become one of the twelve, one of the apostles. And his life would really never be the same. And so before he begins this process of following Jesus, in verse number 10, he holds a feast. He throws a celebration, a a party, uh, so to speak. And at this party, he invites as many uh, uh, publicans and and, uh, tax collectors as he knows to be a part of this party. It doesn't necessarily tell us exactly that he threw the party in verse number 10. However, in some of the parallel accounts in Luke chapter 5, we're told that Levi made him, that's Jesus, he made Jesus a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others uh, that sat down with them. In Mark chapter 2, another parallel account of, of this story, it says, It came to pass that Jesus sat at meat in his house, that would be Levi, Matthew's house, that many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. So Matthew throws a celebration. This was a retirement party, so to speak. I'm I'm done with being a tax collector. I'm done being a publican. Those days are over. 
I'm giving up the security of, of that lucrative job, and I'm following after Jesus. I'm all about him. And it was at this party, this feast, that we find in verse 11 the objection of the Pharisees. You'll note that they rather creatively did not bring this objection to Jesus. They brought it to some of the other disciples. And their objection in verse 11 is, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? In Mark chapter 2, it kind of demonstrates their disgust because it, it phrases it in this way, How is it that your master eats with publicans and sinners? So shocking. So like this is not right. How is this even possible? How can he call himself a teacher? How can he call himself someone uh, who, is, who is close to God? How can he call himself a great teacher and not even know enough that you're not supposed to eat? You're not supposed to associate with people who are sinners like these publicans are. And that was their objection. This is not right. This is wrong. Which leads then to verse number 12, which I'm not sure why they said this to the disciples in earshot of Jesus, because, I mean, they could have just said it to Jesus. He heard it anyway, but whatever. Maybe they were trying to keep it under their breath. They were trying to not be so obvious, and they were that obvious. And when Jesus heard him, he said in verse 12, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. And then our phrase, go ye and learn what that meaneth. You have something to learn. And what's fascinating about this is the phrase that follows, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, is not a, it's not a new phrase. Jesus is actually quoting the scriptures here. In fact, if you want to see it for yourself, go back and if you can find it, uh, find the book of Hosea. Because the quote here is actually from Hosea chapter number 6. So Hosea is part of the minor prophets. And I'm going to try to find it while talking, which is even harder because I almost have to say the books in my head. Go to the minor prophets. It's, they, they start just after Daniel. So right after Daniel you will find the book of Hosea. So if you can find the big book of Daniel, Hosea is one of the easier minor prophets to find. But find chapter number 6 of Hosea. And really the passage begins in verse number 4, Hosea 6 and verse 4. He begins by addressing both Ephraim and Judah. And often Ephraim... Uh, um, directly referred to the northern kingdom, the northern tribes of Israel. Judah would refer to the southern tribes. But he says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. In other words, the good that you produce is kind of like the, the morning fog. It disappears really fast. The dew gets dried up rather quickly, kind of like your righteousness. He says, therefore, have I hewed them by the prophets. And the idea of hewing, that H-E-W-E-D, that, that word means to, to cut open. If you think of it like a, 
uh, a surgeon's scalpel, just opens it up, lays it open to the light of day. He says, I, because of the lack of your righteousness, because of uh, the problems there in the nation, I, I've opened you up by the prophets. By what they said, I exposed you. I have slain them by the words of, of my mouth, and thy judgments are as light that goeth forth. And so the prophets opened them up, and the judgments that came forth was like light. It was shining light into the darkness. And then in verse number 6, he says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, what Jesus was referring to was not something new, something novel. It was something that God had revealed about himself hundreds of years earlier. And what Jesus was saying, and what was so shameful about what was going on back in our text in Matthew chapter 9, was the fact that these Pharisees needed to go and learn something that they really prided themselves in knowing. The Old Testament scriptures. If there ever was a group of people who were supposed to know, and they probably did know, this verse that Jesus was quoting, it was probably familiar to them when he used those words. He, they knew where it came from, but the sad fact of the matter was they didn't understand what it meant. And so this is, this is akin, this is the same as if I were to you know, burst into an operating room where a brain surgery was taking place and I would say to the brain surgeon, yeah, I think you need to go back to medical school, I'll take over from here. What? Excuse me? Um, who do you think you are? But that's what Jesus was saying. By the way, this is not an isolated instance either. Because if you go forward to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this same thing again to the Pharisees. He says, but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So this is a problem that's not just isolated to this one instance. This is something that God had revealed about himself. And this is something that the Pharisees did not understand. And they needed to learn. And the idea of learning is not just a factual knowledge. It's the idea of experiencing, to know something from experience. It's one thing to know this, these are the steps that you're supposed to take in order to get the desired product, in order to get the desired end. I can watch this old house, and I love to watch this old house, and they tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. So I know what you're supposed to do. Have I actually done it? No. It's a little, a little bit different when you actually do it. It's not quite as neat and tidy as it is on TV. A lot more difficult. This was something that the Pharisees failed to assimilate. And as a result, it was something they failed to experience themselves. So the learning was the first part. The experiencing was the second part. And that's the significance of this truth. Not only do we need to learn it, we also need to have a personal experience with it. And so he tells them, go ye. And I like that phrase, or that word, go ye. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying, you, you guys, you Pharisees, you all, 
You need to go and learn. Not them, the publicans and sinners. They actually understand what this means, and you don't. Go and learn. Understand something that you need to understand. Understand what I reveal about myself. Which brings us now to the content of this lesson. The content is simply this. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That phrase, I will have. That's the the idea that I desire something. I choose to take delight in something. I have pleasure in something. If you want to please me, if you want to delight me, you'll fulfill my desire. And so when it comes to how we approach and how we relate to God, how does God desire for us as, as, as human beings, as his creation, how does God desire for us to relate to him? And this is very important because it defines our relationship with God. How do we approach God? How do we go about doing such a thing? Well, let's take a moment specifically and we'll talk about what the Pharisees thought God wanted. The second part of this this lesson, or the second part of this phrase, and it is that which Jesus reveals and the scripture reveals that God disdains. This is what God is not impressed by. This is what God is not, not looking for. And that is the word sacrifice. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. A sacrifice is that which is offered. It can also refer to the act of offering something to God. It's that which I give to God in order to obtain something for myself. It's that which I approach God with and give to Him so that I might receive something for myself. You think about a sacrifice in the in the, uh, uh, the context of what they would have understood it to be. A sacrifice was something that was like, a, like an animal or like a, a certain quantity of food. The Bible calls it a meat offering or uh, even a liquid, a drink offering that you might bring to God. It's, it's that which you would bring in order to obtain something for yourself. A sacrifice, by its very nature, is something that is visible. You can, you can see it. It's something that is measurable. It's something that is uh, quantifiable. It's something that you can look at and you can measure the, the quality. You can measure the size. You can, you can uh, measure the fitness and you can see it. it it's, it's substantive. It, it's something that you can lay your hands on. A sacrifice is also something that's largely dependent upon the means of the person who's offering it. Because the more that you could give, the, the greater quantity that you could give or, or the greater quality in which you could offer re- would reflect on yourself. Because if you could offer it, that means you had it to give in the first place. And so it reflected upon the ability of the person offering it. also reflected upon you know, the, the, the piety or the religiosity of the person who was bringing it. People could see it and they'd go, wow, look at that. I mean, that's pretty amazing. They must... They must really love God. I mean, they must really care about God. It was something that could be seen. And at its heart, at its core, a sacrifice 
is something that I can control. I can control what I bring. I can control how much I bring. I can make sure it's big enough. I can make sure it's got the, 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 the necessary quality to it. I can control when I bring it. And because I can control it, there is a measure of security in it for me. Because I can see it. I can put my hands on it. I can quantify it. It's visible. And the Pharisees were all about this idea of sacrifice. And we know drawing attention to that sacrifice. The very clothes, the garments that they wore, they would wear in order to draw attention to their supposed connection with God, their closeness with God. The offerings that they would give, the, the, the monetary offerings that they would give would often be accompanied, we're told, by the sound of the trumpet. They would get the whole band to play so that everyone would look and see how much they were giving. Their prayers, they would give in a public way, in a public fashion. They would be lengthy and they would be verbose. Lots of big words that everyone would be impressed by and done in public so everyone could see. When they would fast, they would make sure to, you know, neglect washing their face, maybe even make a little bit worse, disfigure their faces, so that other people would see and then, oh, what's wrong with you? I'm fasting today. Oh, oh, wow. These were the sacrifices that they, we could, I think we could use the term, they enjoyed bringing to God. But God was saying, through what he had already revealed in the Old Testament, and God is saying here, in, in this uh, verse through Jesus, God was saying, I do not want your sacrifice to be the basis of how you approach me. I do not want that. I want something else. So let's look at that which God desires. What, God, what does God want? You want to give and you want to offer me, this is what Jesus is saying, you want to offer me sacrifice. That's what you want to give to me. However, what I want to show towards you and what I want to be the basis of how you approach me is not sacrifice, it is mercy. Mercy is simply pity or compassion. And this was a concept that the Pharisees struggled with a great deal. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, there's another, uh, another one of those conflicts with the Pharisees. And, and Jesus said, hey, you, you guys are, you, you, you're, you're tithing of, of all of the spices in, in your kitchen. Yet you have omitted the weightier matters. And one of those weightier matters, guess what? Was mercy. It was one of those heavy things that Jesus made very plain and clear should not be left undone in that verse. This idea of mercy. Now, mercy by definition, if we were to go to a dictionary, we go to Mr. Webster, for example, he says this, that mercy is benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries. Or to treat an offender 
better than he deserves. It's the disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear, idea of putting off or lessening punishment, to inflict less than law or justice will warrant. It is charity and the duties of charity and benevolence. The definition of the the Greek word that's translated mercy in vines, it's, it's described this way. Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet that need on the part of him who shows it. And right here, we begin to get a little bit of a glimmer of why this issue of mercy can be and often is so offensive. Because you say, I mean, mercy, it's, it's pity and compassion. I mean, who, who could have a problem with that? What is exactly so difficult to learn or to understand about this issue of, of mercy? Well, what's difficult, what, what creates the problem is not just the definition of mercy, but it is the implications of mercy. These implications are the horse pill that's difficult for us to get down. Difficult for us to swallow. Because mercy implies some things. And actually more than implies, it requires some things. First of all, mercy requires, it implies a need. In fact, that was exactly how Mr. Vines put it. Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need. It implies a need. Mercy implies both an offense and an offended party. You can't have mercy unless you have both of those parties. And a request for mercy is by its very nature an admission of guilt. Because if you were not guilty, you would not require mercy. And so before you get mercy, you first have to have an acknowledgement, an admission of guilt. You may remember Luke chapter 18 the publican and the Pharisee who were praying. You notice it was a publican, all right? We're told that many of these publicans, they understood this, but the Pharisees didn't. You may remember in that prayer, the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, right there, we see our admission of guilt. I need mercy, God, because I am a sinner. You see, mercy is God's withholding of His righteous judgment without, and without the admission of being rightfully deserving of that righteous judgment, there can be no mercy. Now, that term sinner has... The offense largely has been removed in our day and age today, you won't find too many people who would struggle with, yeah, I'm a sinner. But we do struggle with the meaning of that term. Because if I am a sinner, if I have wronged a righteous and holy God, that means that I deserve His righteous and holy punishment of sin, which He plainly declares to us the wages of, of sin 
is eternal death. Death and separation from God in a place that we commonly refer to as hell. It's a lot different to say, well, I'm a sinner like everyone else, than it is to say, I am a sinner who God would be just in throwing into the pits of hell. Your sin, my sin, quantified, written down on a ledger sheet, that would be enough for God to rightly and justly send me to hell. That's a horse pill. We don't like to swallow that one. We struggle with that one. We say, well, I mean, I haven't murdered anybody. That's what everybody says, right? But at its face, like, I have lived a pretty good life. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I've lived a pretty good life. I don't think it would be right for God to send me to that place. You might be surprised. There's a whole lot of people who have grown up under good, sound Bible preaching, who if you get them to be honest, because they're human beings, like the rest of us, they have a problem with this truth. They don't agree. It wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be right. Because after all, I haven't done that much that's bad. But God says you have. God says you have. Mercy requires a need. It requires an admission of guilt. And without an admission of being rightfully deserving of God's righteous judgment, there can be no mercy. And God says, my relationship with mankind will be based on mercy and nothing else. It implies a need. It requires a need. It also implies that there be a supply It requires that there be a supply. It requires that there be resources that are adequate to meet the need. And of course, we know the Bible reveals to us, Psalms 86 and verse 5, For thou, thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon thee. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, God God is described as being a God who is Rich in mercy. Is there a supply? Oh yes, there is a supply of plenty. So mercy requires a need. It requires a supply. It also requires a willingness to bestow. It's not just that there is a a wealth of mercy that is available, but it also requires the person who controls that mercy, who owns that mercy, it requires a willingness on their behalf to give it, to bestow it. And here is the key. Mercy is an act of God. It's not an act of man. Mercy is something that God demonstrates. And actually, the Scriptures reveal to us that God not only is willing to bestow mercy but that he delights in mercy. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, the Bible says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth, delighteth in mercy. And it's this mercy, this willingness to be merciful that you and I as sinners 
can hope in, and we are required to hope in. Psalm 147 verse 11 tells us, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him, and in those that hope in His mercy. Their hope, their their eggs are in the basket of mercy. Their hope is not in anything of themselves. Mercy requires, requires willingness to bestow. But you know what mercy also requires? And here's something that is that challenges our fear. Mercy requires an unchanging offer. And here's what I mean by that. That which is freely bestowed can just as easily be taken away. That mercy that is bestowed in this moment can be removed at a later moment. I read about the... uh, the king who offered forgiveness to one of his debtors. Do you remember that story that Jesus told? And that debtor received that forgiveness and then went out to someone else who owed him money, much smaller amount. He threatened him, said, I'm going to throw you in jail until you can give me what you owe me. And the king heard about it, called that servant in. You're a wicked servant. And his mercy was removed. And he was thrown into prison till that be extracted from him. You see, once mercy is freely bestowed, it can just as easily be taken away. And so it requires us to have the faith, have the belief that when God offers mercy, that mercy will not be removed. And what, was, what were those few verses we read this morning? Give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. We've got to believe that. Have faith in that, that God's mercy is not going to change. It's not going to go away. It's not going to be removed. We can't lose that which has been granted and given to us. Psalm 135 verse 5 tells us, but I, the psalmist, has trusted, trusted, In thy mercy, my heart shall rejoice then in thy salvation because I've trusted in mercy. Mercy is something that we have to trust because it requires an unchanging offer. And lastly, mercy not only requires a need, requires a supply, it requires a a willingness to bestow, and it requires an unchanging offer But mercy also requires a sacrifice. You say, what? Hold hold on. I thought the whole point of this was God desired mercy and not sacrifice. And now you're telling me that mercy requires a sacrifice? Yes, I am. Go Go in your Bibles, if you can, to Hebrews chapter 10. I hope you can see this connection because it's powerful. It really is. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see it for yourself. So if you can turn there, Hebrews chapter 10, there's obviously a lot in this chapter, but just pick up reading there in verse number 5. Now, in this chapter, the the writer of Hebrews is quoting from, and he's going to quote twice from the book of Psalms. I believe it's chapter 40 and verse 5. And he's going to tie that into the truth of Christ. And you'll see it in just a second. Look, look there, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. It says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, notice this phrase, sacrifice 
and offering, thou wouldest not. So God doesn't desire them. He's not after them. That, that's not what he's looking for. We've just talked about that truth the last couple minutes, right? Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. The person making this statement, it's implied, and you'll see as we read on, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so it is Christ saying that, God, you, those sacrifices, you don't want those things. Sacrifices and offering, thou wouldest not, but you have prepared a body. Okay, what is the connection with that? We'll keep reading. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Verse 7, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of, of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Okay, again, this is Christ now. I've come to do your will, O God. Above, verse 8, when he saith, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast there pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said I, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And here it is. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I, I know this is a little bit deep, but just follow with me. Mercy requires a sacrifice. But what is distinct from what, what Jesus was telling the Pharisees, all right, go and learn what this means, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. What, what, what is distinct, the difference between that sacrifice and this sacrifice is that that sacrifice is ours, this sacrifice is his. It's the body that God had prepared for him that God the Son would inhabit and would take all the way to the cross. And this was something that was not a novel idea, a new thing. Because in the tabernacle, in the place that God designed himself for the worship of him, in that place there was a special room called the Holy of Holies. It was a place in which the Ark of the Covenant, the piece of the furniture that represented the very presence of God, where that piece of furniture was stored. No one went into that place except the high priest once a year. Sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant was another piece of furniture, the lid to that box, and that was called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat required only one offering a year. That single yearly offering pointed and, and, and clearly uh, foreshadowed the once for all offering of Jesus Christ. It was offered on the Day of Atonement. That sacrifice was rendered obsolete when Jesus died on the cross. And the very moment that he gave up the ghost the veil in the temple which separated uh, that holy place, the veil of the temple which prevented people from looking into the holy place and seeing that mercy seat, that veil was rent, was ripped in half. Because the sacrifice that that was pointing to for all of those years was done. One sacrifice. Mercy requires sacrifice, but it's not ours. It's His. 
And when we approach God for mercy, we understand the need for that sacrifice and the total inadequacy of anything that we could offer as a sacrifice. See, the reality is that any sacrifice that we try to bring in order to obtain favor or relationship with God only serves to displace the perfect sacrifice that's already been made. This is what the Pharisees were doing. And I want you to understand, this is what most people, if not all of us, try to do. We try to bring an offering, to bring a sacrifice. And what we are doing is displacing, pushing aside the sacrifice of Christ. Oh, I don't need that. I've got this. Something better? Something better than the perfect, spotless, and holy, righteous Son of God who gave His life for us? Something better? You have something better? I beg to differ with you. I have something better? And there was a time in my life, and if you sit here, even if you say, I know I've been born again, there was probably a time in your life where you were bringing in your own sacrifice. You're bringing in your own lame animal and saying, this should be enough. Shoving aside, trampling upon the righteous sacrifice that God had provided. Because of the fact that sacrifice, it appeals to us. Because sacrifice is me-dependent. Whereas mercy is God-dependent. Sacrifice means that I am still in control. I'm in control Mercy gives up that control because it's an act of God. I can only come to him and he could tomorrow just say, uh, limited supply, limited time offer, sorry, you missed it. And I would have nothing else to stand on. If you ever hope to approach God, it will be because of his mercy and not your sacrifice. It will be because of him not because of you. And that is the difficulty. That is the reality that it wasn't just because the the Pharisees had a learning issue. It wasn't just the fact that they, oops, we misunderstood. It was actually an issue that they didn't want to understand. And that's the rub. Because there's something in all of our human nature, we don't like this. The idea of us approaching God with our own works, earning our way to heaven, earning our salvation, it appeals to all of us, raised in a Christian home or not. It appeals to every single one of our natures. But the Bible is pretty clear. If you want to approach God, it will be because of Him and not because of you. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. That is the lesson. God wants to give mercy. He does not want your sacrifice. Because the sacrifice for your sins has already been made. Now Jesus applies this lesson in our text. We won't spend much time on it. But those statements in the beginning and at the end apply the truth. 
Jesus says, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. Only those that are aware of their sickness will search for a physician who can help them. Only those that are in need of the, the, the mercy of, of the great physician will actually seek a cure to the disease that they believe they had. If, if you don't believe you have that disease, then why seek the cure? Jesus also said, I'm, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because it's only sinners who are in need of the mercy that God says he wants to, to, to give. And it's that mercy that calls them than to repentance. In other words, if you don't see yourself in need of God's mercy, then God is not calling you to repentance. You've got nothing to repent from. Everything is good and dandy in your world. See, if you've never come to the place of seeing yourself as a sinner, justly deserving the punishment of God, if you see yourself as being pretty good, if you see yourself as being righteous, then the chilling truth is that you are outside of His mercy. That you are separated from that mercy. And so, this morning, I want to ask you a simple question. Have you ever come to God on the basis of His mercy alone? Nothing else but His mercy. Is the relationship that you claim to have at this point in your life, the relationship that you claim to have with God, is it based on who you are? Or is it based on who God has declared Himself to be as the God of mercy? Has there been a time in your life where you cried out for the mercy of God because you realized that you actually needed it. And you chose to leave aside the sacrifice, whatever sacrifice you could offer to Him. And as believers, you know, this is something about God that does not change when we're saved. And it's amazing how quickly in our minds we can make this switch That my acceptance, my reception from God comes from that which I give to Him. The quality of uh, of that relationship with God is dependent on me and what I dedicate to Him. That's not what sacrifice should be about at all. It should be out of a heart of love. Because you want to give to the one who has given everything for you. We get that out of whack. And we need to understand, revisit the lesson. It's time for a review. And the review is, God says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy requires that I set my sacrifices aside and come to Him, as the hymn writer wrote, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me.